listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome once again to Whitefields Community Church. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning to worship and song and in study of God's Word. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. That's where our, te- our text will come from this morning. Uh, 2 Timothy in your Bibles, you know, it's towards the back of your New Testament. It's right before Titus. So it's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, then Hebrews. So you can find it in there. If you're using an app on your phone, feel free to just uh, dial that up. So 2 Timothy chapter 1. And currently we are in the season of Advent. And Advent is the four weeks leading up until Christmas. And historically this is a time when Christians focus our hearts and our minds on the Advent of Jesus into this world. The word Advent, by the way, means arrival. It means arrival. And so during the season of Advent, we take some time and set aside to focus on the arrival of Jesus into the world and what it means for us, why he came. And that's what we're doing This month of December, we're taking the month to set aside, to look at Advent, consider why Jesus has come, what he did in his first coming, to look forward to his promise that he will one day come again. And we're reflecting specifically in this series we're in right now, it's called God With Us. And what we're reflecting on is the meaning of this idea that God is, that Jesus came to us as Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we're looking at the incarnation, that act in which God became one of us. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. That's what Christmas is all about. And the title of today's message is, Born that man no more may die. That's a line from the hymn, uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which we're going to sing at the end. But that's a line from it. it says, Born that man no more may die. And that's our title this morning. Let's begin by reading our text and then we'll pray. Our text comes from 2 Timothy chapter 1 and we'll read from verse 8 to 10. This is Paul writing to Timothy and he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing, or the advent, of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great promise. Lord, that through your appearing, you have abolished death and brought about life and immortality. You've brought it to light through the gospel. Lord, this morning I pray, help us to see and understand, to comprehend and to feel, Lord, the depth and the weight of the gospel. Lord, we pray that it would take hold of our hearts, that it would cause us to rise up in hope. Lord, that it would move us out from this building into the world to do your work and walk in your ways. So Lord, we ask this morning as we hear your word, give us receptive hearts, give us minds to understand, hearts to receive, and lives that put it into practice. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you a question. Do you have any enemies? Do you have any enemies? The dictionary defines an enemy as someone or something which is actively opposed to or hostile to you. Maybe you say, well, I'm, I'm a pretty friendly person, right? I don't like to consider other people my enemies. Maybe there's somebody who considers you an enemy. But more importantly, even if you get along with everyone in the world perfectly, remember this, an enemy isn't necessarily a person. 
Uh, an, an enemy can be a force or a fact of life. For example, if I want to fly and jump off this building, gravity is my enemy, right? It will take me down. It will fight against me doing what I want to do. As a parent, sometimes I feel like time is my enemy because every time I turn around, my kids are taller and bigger and older and there are moments that I had with them that we shared together that I will never get back. Time, it feels like, is my enemy. And the greatest and ultimate enemy that all of us face is death isn't it? Death takes us away from those whom we love. Uh, you can succeed at everything in life, your career, your finances, your family. Even if you achieve all of your goals, death will take it all away. Death is the enemy of life, and it seems that at the end of the day, death always wins. But here in the first chapter of Paul's second letter to Timothy, his protege, his old friend, Paul the Apostle tells him and us something incredible and something incredibly hopeful. He says, the appearing, or in other words, remember that word means advent, advent, the appearing, the advent of our Savior, Christ Jesus, it changes everything because he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, I want you to remember where Paul was when he wrote this letter, because if you consider where he was in the context in which he wrote this, it becomes very clear that this wasn't just some abstract theological concept that he was spouting out. No, this was something that was incredibly personal to him. It was intimate to him. This was a real hope that he had in the midst of very difficult circumstances that he was facing. Second Timothy is the last letter that Paul wrote before he died. And he wrote it from a prison cell. Now you might be saying, well, didn't Paul write a lot of letters from prison cells? Kind of, kind of. See, Paul wrote a series of what are called the prison epistles. And the prison epistles, that's kind of a misleading name because in his first Roman imprisonment, it's true that he was imprisoned, but he wasn't in a prison cell. He was under what we would call house arrest. He had appealed his case to basically the equivalent of the Supreme Court, and he was being held in a rented house. Now, he was chained to guards. He wasn't free, but it wasn't exactly a dungeon, right? It was a, it was a rented apartment, basically, that he lived in in Rome. And during that time, he used that time to write, which is also incredible, right? It's still incredible that he did this, but he wrote Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. That was during his first Roman imprisonment. His first Roman imprisonment, by the way, ended with Paul being exonerated and let go. But this is written during his second Roman imprisonment. And this imprisonment wasn't written under house arrest this one was in an actual dungeon, exactly what you would expect, right? Dark, damp, cold. We know it was cold because Paul tells Timothy in this letter, bring me a coat because I'm cold. This one didn't end with Paul's exoneration. This one ended with Paul's execution. And in this letter, we, we know many things about it. We know that really Paul understood he's about to die because he says in the letter, he says, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon because the time of my departure has come. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've run the race. It's time for my life to end. He knew that he wasn't getting out of this prison alive. And, and the fact is he did not. But as Paul was facing his imminent death, the hope that he held on to 
was this, that the appearing, the advent of Jesus is good news. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. And it was good news because he says Jesus, in his coming, in his advent, he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. That's what Christmas is all about. That's the reason for the season. Jesus was born to abolish death and bring immortality to light. How does that work? Well, in order to understand the advent of Jesus, there's something else we have to understand first, and that is the advent of death. That's our first point, the advent of death. The author C.S. Lewis, he once said this. He said, if I constantly find within myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, The only logical explanation is that I was made for a different world. If I I constantly find within myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, then I must conclude that I must have been made for a different world. In other words, he says, look, for every desire you have, there's a corresponding thing which satisfies that desire. You're hungry, there's food. You're thirsty, there's water. You're tired, there's sleep. But what's interesting is that there are some desires that all of us have as human beings for which there is no corresponding earthly thing that satisfies it. For example, if you look at all of the great stories, the movies that we pay to see, they all basically have the same themes over and over again. They just change out the characters, change a few things in the plot, the setting. But basically, a lot of them follow the same storylines. Look at the great books, the great stories that are told in all cultures of the world. What are they all about? They're about good overcoming evil. They're about victory snatched from the jaws of defeat. They're about true love that never ends. They're about escaping death. They're about fantastic worlds in which the the rules of this world don't apply, right? Where you're not limited by the limitations that this world puts upon us. The reason we like these stories, the reason we can't get enough of these stories, the reason we keep telling them and paying money to see them is why? Because they reflect desires that we have that there is nothing in this world that can satisfy. They're things that we wish we could experience, things that we desperately want and hope for. And yet we live in a world where many times good does not win over evil. Sometimes it seems like evil wins the day, right? Sometimes uh, no matter how much you love somebody, eventually you're going to lose them. In other words, we have certain desires which nothing in this world can satisfy. And C.S. Lewis says, then we must conclude that we must have been made for a different world, a world that's different than the one we currently live in. And Blaise Pascal, you know, he was a philosopher. He was also a Christian. And he said this, he said, these desires that we have, you know what they are? They reflect what he called an ancestral memory. It's like we have this ancestral memory of the way that things used to be, even though we've never experienced it ourselves, the way that things are supposed to be. We innately know it and we long to get back to that place where things are the way they're supposed to be. And that would make sense, right? Because the Bible tells us the same thing that the world we live in today is not the world we were originally created for. If you go back to the creation story in the beginning of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, it tells us how God created the world. And, And here's what you find in that story, that death and decay were not part of the original design. We were made to live in relationship with God. But what happened, as you may know, is that we turned our backs on God. We decided to go our own way And it both destroyed our relationship with God and it brought death and decay into the world. Death in the Bible is referred to as a curse. 
It's referred to as a consequence of sin. We're told that the wages, the consequence of sin is death. So that's why when God put the first man and the woman in the world, what did he do? He put them in this garden. He specially prepared for them and he gave them careful instructions. He says, look, you can eat from any of the trees in the garden except for this one. Because if you eat from this one, you will surely die. He's essentially saying, look, I set before you life and death. Choose life, right? I set before you a glass of water and a glass of antifreeze. Don't drink the antifreeze, right? Life and death, choose life. He desperately wants them to choose life. And yet if you know the story, you know, Adam and Eve chose to believe the lies of the serpent more than the promises of God. And they ate of the tree which God had warned them not to eat of because it would lead to death. But here's what's interesting. If you've ever read the story, you might've noticed this. God told them, if you eat of this tree, you're gonna die. Then they do, but they don't drop dead right on the spot. That's what I always expect is gonna happen. Eat of it, done, dead. But they don't. They live for many years after that, right? They have kids, they build houses, they do all kinds of stuff. But here's what happened. Through that action, they opened a door. That They brought sin and death and evil into the world. And it didn't only enter the world. Here's the other thing. It didn't just get into the world. It got into us. It got into us. And and not only did they experience death spiritually, but on that day, they began to die physically. In the book of Romans, there's this phrase that's so interesting. Paul the Apostle, he tells us that from the time of Adam, death has reigned. Death has reigned since the time of Adam. And in order to help us see that fact, in order to illustrate that, the chapters that follow that, so one and two, Genesis one and two are the creation story. Genesis three is the story of the fall into sin. So what happens after that? In Genesis chapter four, we see a series of illustrations to help us really understand and comprehend just how comprehensive this sin thing, this death thing really is in the world, right? We see just how pervasive and destructive the effects of sin are in the world. In the very next chapter, in chapter four, what happens? Adam and Eve have kids and they're so excited. Cain and Abel, they're these two boys. But then what happens? They grow up. One gets jealous of the other. He gets jealous of his success. And in his anger, he kills him. Now, why are we told that story? We know that they had other children. Why did we told the story only of these two, Cain and Abel? Well, here's why. Because do you realize this is the first instance in the history of the world in which someone dies? Abel dies. He's the first person to ever die. And we're told this story because God wants us to see this is what has happened because of sin and evil, hatred and jealousy. They lead to death. And still in Genesis chapter four, then Cain has children. They turn their backs on God. They go their own way. And one of them, a guy named Lamech, he needs to get revenge because somebody offended him. And what does he do? He kills people. Death, more death. And then in chapter five, I have to say, it's, it's a, one of the strangest chapters in the Bible, but it's one of my favorite because once you understand the message of it, it's so incredible. In Genesis chapter five, one of the strangest chapters in the whole Bible, it's this long list of people and all it tells us about them is that they were born, they had a kid, and then they died. Born, had a kid, died. Doesn't tell us anything else about them. Like here, here's an example. It says like, Seth was born. He had a son named Enosh. Then he had some other kids and then he died. Then Enosh was born. He had a son named Kenan and some other kids too. And then he died. 
So anticlimactic, right? We're, we're not told anything else. And here's what's so interesting. In Genesis chapter five, it covers a period of 1,656 years. 1,656 years. And we're told zero things about what happened on the earth during that time or what these people did, right? We're just told, okay, this guy lived, he had some kids, then he died. Did you know 1,656 years? That is almost the same amount of time that the rest of the Bible covers in the, in the rest of the Bible until the end is about that amount of time. And that chunk of time is just kind of jumped over and all we're told is that there were some people and God tells us nothing about them except their names, how long they lived, and that they died. It doesn't say, and he was also a great guy and people liked him and he was good at sports and he had an office with a window. No, nothing. Just born, died, had a few kids in between, then they died, and then their kids, guess what they did? They also died. This is like the 30,000 foot view of human history. It's like a tombstone. You walk through a the cemetery and you see tombstones with with names and dates on them when you were born when you died and everything else is just so tragically and sadly summed up in a dash another thing that's interesting about this chapter is that all the people lived very long lives I don't know if you've ever noticed that but they lived much longer lives than people live today but here's the thing even though they lived really long lives they all died. They're not walking around anymore, except for one guy, and, and we don't have time to talk about that story today. That's a story for a different day. But the point of this chapter is to show us this is the effect of sin. This is what it did in the world. Ever since sin came into the world on that one day, death has reigned, and there is no way to escape it. No matter how long you live, no matter what you accomplish, one day death is coming to take you away, and there is nothing you can do to avoid it. There is nothing you can do to escape it. But people try, don't they? Right? That's the point of what happens after that in the Tower of Babel. Have you ever read that story, really? They build this tower that they say they're trying to build a tower that will connect them to heaven. What are they doing? They're trying to get back what was lost in the Garden of Eden. They're trying to build a tower to connect them to heaven. And here's what I find most interesting about the Tower of Babel. It says that for mortar, right, between the bricks, they used pitch. A pitch is basically an oil-based tar, an oil-based tar. Now, why would they do that? Well, because pitch is waterproof. Do you know what else was covered in pitch? Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark was covered in pitch to make it waterproof. And so what is the Tower of Babel really all about? It's about building a connection to heaven. You might call it building a stairway to heaven. It's about making themselves safe. Safe from what? Safe from death, right? To connect to heaven and to save themselves from death. So that if there's another flood, for example, because this happens right after the flood, if there's another flood, they'll be able to go up in the tower and they won't die. They'll be safe. You see what the people building the Tower of Babel were trying to do. Number one, not die. And number two, go to heaven. And they failed at both. And isn't this the history of the world? People striving to not die and go to heaven, right? This is people striving to get back what they lost in the Garden of Eden and not being able to do it. You know, I've had the honor of officiating a fair number of funerals. And one of the things I've noticed as I do funerals is that people are always shocked. They're always surprised. It always seems like they, they say, 
I just can't believe it. It doesn't matter if great grandma is 100 years old. They're still shocked. It's always a surprise. And you might wonder, well, hey, you know, people have been dying for a pretty long time, right? Like literally everybody, except for like a couple, right? So why are you so surprised? Why does this come as a shock? Shouldn't this be the most natural, normal thing in the world for you that people die? But the reason why death feels foreign, and and it should feel foreign, the reason it's shocking, the reason it feels like some travesty has taken place, something unnatural has happened, is because, as the Bible tells us, this isn't the way things should be. It might be how it is, but it's not how it should be. We weren't made for this. We weren't made to live a few years and then die. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We were made for light and life and relationship with God. And death is an intruder. It is a thief. It is a foreign entity. It is a fox that has gotten into the chicken coop. In the Old Testament law, if you touched a dead body, it made you ceremonially ceremonially unclean. That meant you were unfit for the presence of God. And what that communicated and what it meant and why it's important is because it showed people that death is not natural. Death is contrary to God and his nature and who he is, that he's opposed to it. So if you look around the world today, you'll notice this, that people are desperately trying to live longer and escape death. Tom Brady our favorite quarterback, right, from the New England Patriots. I used to not like him, but now he's like, uh, I don't know, 95 years old, and he's still amazing. So now you have to respect him, right? Well, anyway, Tom Brady spends thousands of dollars a week on special diets. He sleeps in a hyperbaric chamber. He's trying to do everything he can, supplements. He has a staff of people who work for him. And um, this whole point is to keep him young, to stop the aging process. And it seems to be working pretty well, but I have this sneaking suspicion that one day time is going to catch up even to Tom Brady. You know, the same thing happened with Michael Jackson. I was reading about it this week, that in the 1980s, Michael Jackson had declared to everybody that he was going to live longer than anyone else in modern history. He slept in a hyperbaric chamber, like 100% oxygen every night, as opposed to like the 22% that you and I get. Michael Jackson said that with his staff of doctors and his hyperbaric chamber, he was going to live longer than anyone else in modern history. He said he would live to at least 150 years old. And sadly, he didn't reach that goal. But this quest for immortality, it's it's nothing new. Last year, I went to Florida, and uh, the people we stayed with took us to this place where the explorer Ponce de Leon had believed that this place was the fountain of youth. And we were like, oh, cool, here's the fountain of youth. And then we went online and found out that there's like a whole bunch of places around Florida that are supposedly Ponce de Leon's fountain of youth. You know why? Because Ponce de Leon was traveling around Florida looking for this legendary pool that if you drink of it, then it would restore your health and restore your youth. And if you kept drinking of it, you could live forever. And then I guess he kept drinking this water and then people still died and people still got older. So he went and tried to find another one. Indiana Jones, right? He was looking for the Holy Grail so he could drink from it and live forever. And that didn't work out for him either. See, see, a big thing nowadays that people are trying to do is if you have enough money, you can pay to have your body cryogenically frozen. I found out there's a place in Arizona for $80,000, they'll freeze just your head. And for, uh, I think it's like 
$200,000 to freeze your whole body. And they have uh, Ted Williams. I don't know if you remember Ted Williams, big baseball player back in the day, last guy to hit over 400 in a season. So Ted Williams had his whole body frozen and he's in Scottsdale, Arizona, if you wanna go visit him, right? But the idea is that uh, these people are frozen so that someday when science figures out how, they can be reanimated. And the, and the cryogenic freezing place says it may take you know, several thousand years until we figure that out, but at least you know, you'll be frozen until then as long as you pay your monthly fee or somebody does, I don't know. So anyway, I was reading this article and it, this line struck me. You're not gonna believe this. Check this out. This article about this facility in Scottsdale, Arizona that does cryogenic freezing. Here's what they said. Inside this Scottsdale office building are the heads and bodies of people who have been cryonically preserved. Now check this out. With the hope that death will not be permanent. That's what, we're, that's what it's all about, right? The hope that death will not be permanent. That's what we all want so desperately. That's what we're all trying to figure out how. Out of these one, they have 168 human beings frozen there in Scottsdale, Arizona. But here's the part I love. They also have 90 pets, including several cats, a few dogs, one turtle, and one chinchilla. I don't know who's gonna take care of those guys once they figure out how to reanimate them. But again, the hope is that their death will not be permanent. Now, another thing people are doing nowadays to avoid death is cloning, which I found very interesting. Again, internet's very, very helpful. I found a company that will clone your dog for $50,000. For $50,000, you can get your dog cloned. You can get your cat cloned for $25,000. My opinion is, now hear me out, maybe just get another dog, right? Like, okay, but uh, the hope is that one day, though, we'll be able to clone ourselves, and that way, we'll never die, right? The other old us will die, and the new us will live for, will just be, continue to do it. Barbara Streisand actually did this a couple of years ago. She cloned her dogs, and, uh, and I read an interview with her last night, and she said she was disappointed with the cloning process because she discovered that her cloned dog had a different personality than the original dog. So maybe that whole cloning thing isn't going to work out in the end, right? So the problem is this. We were made to live, but death keeps messing it up. And there's nothing we can do about it. No matter how hard we try, we can't escape it. Death is our true and ultimate enemy. That brings us to our second point, which is a bridge to immortality. See, the message of Christmas is that the advent of death brought about the advent of Christ here on earth because God loves you. The advent of death brought about the advent of Christ because God loves you. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, there's a very interesting verse. I, I caught it as we were studying last week, Matthew chapter 2. It says this. It says that Jesus was raised in Nazareth in order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, so here's why this is interesting. You can look through the whole Old Testament. You're not going to find a single prophecy that mentions the city of Nazareth, much less the fact that the Messiah would be born in the city of, or would be raised in the city of Nazareth. Now, that's, that's not a problem for us because if you read the verse, you'll notice that Matthew isn't actually referring to a specific prophecy and saying this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Rather, he's speaking in general and saying the prophet's in general, taught that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. Now, what does that mean, though? Now, first of all, the word Nazareth in Hebrew means branch. It means branch. And so Nazarene would mean from the branch. And by the way, that word, the branch, 
or the one from the branch is actually a title in the Old Testament which is used for the Messiah. Let me give you an example. Here in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah is predicting the Messiah, the king who will one day come. And here's what he says. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch, and some of your Bibles will have that capitalized because that is a title for the Messiah. A branch will bear fruit. By the way, Jesse was the father of King David. And of course, then Jesus is born into that family line. And here's what he says, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. You know why that's interesting? Because Jesus quoted that verse to introduce himself as the Messiah in the synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus quoted this verse when he introduced himself and told people he was the Messiah. And then it goes on and he says this, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So the branch, this is a messianic title. It's a name that the prophets used for the Messiah. And Nazareth means branch. Okay, but there's another way in which the prophets predicted that Jesus would be a Nazarene. See, the word Nazarene in that day was kind of a byword, right? It's kind of like an insult that you would throw at somebody because Nazareth was not a place that was highly regarded. It was very much looked down upon. And I've always wondered, why was Nazareth looked down upon? Why was it despised? Why was it a byword? Well, this, this year, earlier this year, we were able to go to Israel. And I hope that many of you will take the opportunity in the future to take that trip because it was so helpful to me to really understand a lot of things. See, one of the reasons why Jewish people would not have liked Nazareth is because Nazareth was a small town of about 2,000 people. And it, it was really kind of functioned as a suburb of a big Greek town, which was called Sephoris. There was a big Greek town populated by Greeks who were pagans called Sephoris and it was about five kilometers or you know three to four miles away from Nazareth and so the Jews of Nazareth basically all worked as construction workers and manual laborers in the Greek city of Sephoris and so other Jews looked down on them first of all because they were a poor blue-collar town but secondly because the people in Nazareth made their money and made their living by working for the pagan Greeks in Sephoris. Now we know that Jesus' parents were poor blue-collar workers. We often hear that Joseph was a carpenter but, but one of the things I learned again in Israel this year is that that word carpenter should rather be thought of as a builder. In other words he was a, a construction worker. He, he was a blue-collar person. We know that when they came to dedicate Jesus in the temple, they gave the offering that poor people would give because they couldn't afford the full offering. So Jesus came from a poor town, from blue-collar family, and he was a, you know, a poor family. And one of the things that the prophets predicted about the Messiah is this, that he would be humble, that he would be of lowly stock, that he would not be highly regarded, that he would even be despised. And as a Nazarene, all of those things would be true. In fact, if you want to know just how much Jewish people look down on people from Nazareth, all you got to do is go in your Bible to first, uh, sorry, the first chapter of the Gospel of John. The first chapter of the Gospel of John. Feel free to turn there. I want to share with you a story that comes at the very end of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Here in this first chapter, we read about how Jesus was gathering his very first disciples on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It was about a two-day walk away from where he grew up in Nazareth. And he had gone there to Galilee, and he's gathering his first disciples. And he met this guy named Philip, and he told Philip, hey, come and follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. And and Philip becomes one of his disciples. And then Philip tells his friend Nathaniel, he says to his, his buddy Nathaniel, hey, 
Guess what? We found the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. And Nathaniel's like, cool, awesome. And Philip says, his name is Jesus and, and he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's like, wait, what? Right? Like, you got to be mistaken. This can't be the guy. There's no way that this guy could be the Messiah because nothing good can come from Nazareth. He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And of course, he thinks the answer is no. And Philip says to him, come and see. He's going to bring him and introduce him to Jesus. And by the way, I'll just stop right there, just kind of as an aside. Isn't that such a great response from Philip? Like, come and see. Look, if you have friends or family members and they ask questions about Jesus or the Bible of faith and you don't know how to answer those questions, let me encourage you, just respond like Philip responded. Say, hey, come and see. Come with me. Come to a church. Christmas Eve is a great time, by the way, to invite somebody to join you at church or invite them to start praying with you or reading the Bible on their own. I've seen God transform people's lives in that way. Tell them, come and see for yourself. So Philip brings his skeptical friend, Nathaniel, to Jesus. And Jesus says something before Nathaniel even gets up to him face to face. He says something to him that completely changes Nathaniel's opinion about Jesus right away. Jesus tells him, hey, there you are. I know you. I already know you. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you when you were sitting under the fig tree. Now, we don't know anything about the circumstances of that incident that Jesus is referring to. We don't know what happened, what took place underneath that fig tree, but we can decipher that it must have been something so personal, something so private, that Nathaniel was sure that no one could possibly have known about it. And the fact that Jesus knew what no one else could possibly know convinces Nathaniel right there on the spot that truly this man must be the Messiah. And we see that because of how he responds. He says, Nathaniel answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. These are messianic titles. Nathaniel's declaring, Jesus, you are the Messiah. I acknowledge it and I'm going to follow you. But this is where it gets really interesting. Check out what Jesus says next. It's something which I think a lot of people have have not completely understood. Jesus says to him this, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, did you believe? You will see greater things than these. You say, "You, you were impressed by that. That's not even what I came to do. Check this out. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Do you know what Jesus is referring to here? He's referring to a story from the Old Testament. It's it's sometimes called Jacob's Ladder. Do you ever hear the story of Jacob's Ladder? In Genesis chapter 28, Jacob, who's the grandson of Abraham, he's on the run. His brother Esau wants to kill him, and so he's running. He's out in the wilderness, and one night he falls asleep under the stars with a rock for a pillow, and he falls asleep, and he has a vision. And in this vision, he sees heaven opened up, And he sees a ladder or a bridge connecting heaven and earth. And there are angels traveling back and forth on this ladder or bridge. And and now Jesus is telling Nathaniel, Nathaniel, do you remember Jacob's ladder? You remember that story of the, the bridge that connects heaven and earth? He said, I am Jacob's ladder. I am the bridge, the ladder upon which the angels travel back and forth. I am the bridge which spans the gap between heaven and earth. Think about the Tower of Babel again. What did they want, right? They wanted to build a tower that would reach to heaven, but they couldn't. Other people have tried to work their way to heaven, but there's no way to do it. But now Jesus is saying, 
He has not only opened up the way to heaven, he's not only here to point the way to heaven, but he is the way to heaven. He is the bridge that spans the gap between heaven and earth, between death and immortality. Now, here's the thing. You might think, okay, so a ladder, well, that's cool. Well, that means that I've got to climb that ladder. I've got to climb it, and it's probably slippery, right? And I, I got to do it fast, and I better be strong, and I better have a lot of stamina, because if I don't, I'll fall off the ladder, and, and that'll be the end of me. But if I can have stamina and strength, then I can reach God. But that's not the idea behind this ladder. Look at what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 10. He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, you don't have to climb your way up to God because the message of the gospel is that God has come down to you. This ladder between heaven and earth, Jacob's ladder, who is Jesus, it's not the ladder by which we ascend to God. It's a ladder by which God has come down to us. See, Paul the Apostle, he says in Ephesians chapter two, he says that he himself, Jesus himself, is our peace. He reconciled us to God through the cross by taking our curse and paying our price, paying our debt. The advent of death is what brought about the advent of Christ because God loves you. He came to be that bridge that spans life and death, heaven and earth, death and immortality. And the question is, how do we receive that? How do we receive it? How do you get that salvation that Jesus came to bring? Well, we see, first of all, it requires humility. To associate ourselves with a Nazarene requires humility, and it requires faith. So the message of the gospel is this. Heaven has been opened for those who humble themselves before God and put their faith in Jesus. The problem is the advent of death. The solution is the advent of Jesus to be the bridge to immortality. And the great news is our final point, the death of death. The hope of the Messiah is that he would come and he would put death to death. That's what the whole Bible is about. It's about the problem of death and the promise of God that death will not get the final word because he will do something. And I know that for every single one of us, this isn't, this isn't a, a theoretical thing. This isn't an abstract thing. This is extremely relevant. It's extremely personal, not only because death touches your life, but because it touches the lives of those whom you love. And if we look at some of the promises of God, check out what they say. Isaiah chapter 25, it says, he will swallow up on this mountain, that's Mount Zion. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over the peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is talking about the great climax that all of God's plans are building up to. And he says this, and then will come the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In Revelation chapter 21, we read about the day that is coming when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death, it says, shall be no more. In the Gospel of John, we read this time when Jesus' close friend, Lazarus, he dies. And Jesus was close with him. Jesus was close with his family. And they're upset because here Jesus is healing people all over. 
And why doesn't he heal his friend? Why doesn't he heal their brother, Lazarus? He's, he's off healing everybody. Why not Lazarus? Why did he let Lazarus die? And Jesus comes and talks to Martha, one of Lazarus' sisters, and he says to her something really important. He says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, I believe. See, that's important because, remember, they were upset that Jesus was healing other people, but they hadn't healed uh, Lazarus, or Jesus hadn't healed Lazarus. And, and here's the thing. You know all those people who Jesus healed? Where are they at now? They, they've all died, haven't they? They, they got healed temporarily, but eventually they got sick again and they all died. None of them are still alive today. In other words, the, Jesus is telling them, look, you guys wanted me to heal your brother. That would be a temporary solution. That'd be like putting a Band-Aid on something. I didn't come to give a temporary solution. I came not just to postpone death. I came to abolish death. I came not just to save your brother for a few extra years. I came to save him from death completely. And he asked her, do you believe? He said, this same promise can be true for you. Do you believe? To believe, it means to trust in, to rely on, to cling to someone or something. So to believe in Jesus means to trust in, to rely on, to cling to him and what he did for you. He came to be the bridge between heaven and earth. On the cross, he put to death the enmity that stood between you and God. And so even if this body of flesh passes away, the hope of the gospel is that you will not die, but you will take hold of the life which is truly life. I love how Job said it as he looked to the end of his life. He said this, for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see myself. My eyes will behold him and not another. My heart faints within me. He's like, this is too good to be true. I, I can't wait for that day. The promise of the gospel is that if you humble yourself before God and put your faith in Jesus, God himself has bridged the gap between him and you, between death and immortality. And because of that, we can declare, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, death has been swallowed up in victory and thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's what Christmas is all about. This is the hope of Christmas. Jesus was born that we no more may die. The advent of death led to the advent of Christ because God loves you. And my question for you today is this. Do you have this hope? Have you humbled yourself before God and put your faith in Jesus? Do you trust in him? Do you rely on him? Do you cling to him? If not, or if you're not sure, then I urge you to do so. Life and death are set before you today. Choose life. And if you do have this hope, let me encourage you to walk in it. To live your life as someone who has been set free from death. Therefore, you don't need to walk in darkness anymore. You can live with so much confidence. You can walk in the light of life. You can let hope abound in every area of your life. You can live your life with the big picture, the freedom that comes from knowing the big picture, that this life is short and that therefore there are some things that matter more than other things, more than things that we are anxious about and pay attention to. It puts everything in perspective when we consider life and death and eternity. And I wanna encourage you to live and live Live out that perspective this Advent season as you reflect on God's love for you expressed in the ultimate way by the coming of Jesus into the world to abolish death and bring immortality and life to light through the gospel. Please stand with me and let's pray.
Lord, I thank you for this hope that we have because of the gospel. Jesus, I thank you that you came and you died in order to abolish death, that we might be set free from the fear of death. And Lord, I pray that truly we would walk in that freedom. I pray for anybody here today who says, you know what, I don't even know if I have that hope. Lord, I pray that today they would trust in you. They would give their life to you. They would call you Lord. As you said, uh, we don't have to climb up to you, nor could we ever, but the word is in our mouths. It's so close to us if we just confess that you are Lord and put our faith in you. Lord, help us to trust in you, to rely on you, to cling to you this holiday season. And Lord, may your light shine through us in this world, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.